0: Episode one of Blood, Sweat and Fears. Welcome everybody to the ultimate podcast with a focus on athlete experiences, readiness and preparation for life both in and out of sport. Andy Murray's impending retirement from top level tennis has brought into sharp focus the challenges facing those who've dedicated years of their lives to their chosen sport once the curtain comes down on their careers. There's a common misconception as there has been with Murray that although some face the future having achieved their sporting ambitions and in a financially stable position that everything will be okay but of course this is simply not the case irrespective of their career success academic qualifications or wealth the average period of mourning for athletes leaving their career is two to 10 years with up to 70% facing mental health challenges along the way. So just how tough is it for sportsmen and women both during their careers and as they're heading out into the big wide world? How do they ready themselves for the formidable challenges that sport brings? How can they avoid the pitfalls that lead so many into relationship problems, financial collapse and mental health issues? How do they fill the void when they don't have the structure that sport once provided them with? What skills have they acquired that they might be able to transfer into the workplace? How can they start planning their career transition before they find it staring them in the face? I'm Mark Clement. This podcast is brought to you by EY and their personal performance programme, Building a Better Working World. Alongside me, my co-host. Scott Ward who is the lead for the EY personal performance programme having experienced his own journey as a professional footballer he is one of footballing brothers, Scott has established a leading framework that focuses on the stakeholders in sport by assisting them with their holistic development of people during and after sport. Following an enforced retirement at 25, multiple surgeries, including on his back, hip and heart, Scott has studied the area of athlete welfare and mental health for the past seven years and continues to do so. He's now a qualified mental health first aider with a focus on preventative action and working alongside sport organisations globally utilising a variety of approaches enhanced by statistical analysis. Joining us for episode one of Blood, Sweat and Fears, a three-times Olympic medal-winning Commonwealth Games gold medal-winning heptathlete and now run coach for Wasps rugby team, Kelly Southerton. We'll also hear from Great Britain's greatest ever Paralympian, Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson and Catherine Lane, who's just been cut from Team GB's hockey training squad and is starting out on her journey into life after sport and you know what you two you two are brilliant to launch this podcast because you both have stories that prove there's no one size fits all to this i mean scott from your point of view i mean just 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 take us through the end of your sporting life and sorry i'm not trying to rub this in or anything but arguably your
1: debut was the highest moment yeah for sure i think um I suppose really my career was back to front, wasn't it? You, you, you have a career like mine where, thank God, save a penalty with your first touch in league football, expecting it to only go one way. Um, but unfortunately for me, it only went another way, which was down. And uh, I think towards the end, I probably spent the last three or four years trying to hold on, uh, which is something that obviously the game doesn't prepare you for. And it's, it's an incredibly lonely, lonely time.
0: Mm. And the brothers as well, of which one's still playing, uh, one played for a couple of clubs in the, in the Premier League. I guess that... That creates, even though you might have had
1: great brotherly love for them,
0: that creates an extra pressure as well, doesn't it? There must be those comparisons there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the
1: change of dynamic is pretty quick, if I'm honest. Um, You know, you're sharing the discussions of training and and matches. The following week, you're not. And, you know, even mum and dad going out to watch the boys play on the weekend or on a Tuesday, you're left at home and there's only so much saved by the bell that you can watch without feeling like something's gone wrong. Um, You know, it's... It's difficult because you don't want to have those discussions with Elliot and Darren at the time because they're doing exceptionally well. You don't want to talk about the negativity, the change of mindset that you're having to go through because it's a scary time. Mm. I mean, Kelly, from your point of
0: view as well, I mean, you know, I, I talked about your, your medal hall there. But obviously, a couple of those took a little while to, to come your way, didn't they? You know, the whole Russian doping scandal and arrived nine years after you should have had them so that must have left a huge impression on your own retirement i.e you got twice as many medals as you thought you had
2: (laughs) yeah um because i retired really unsatisfied and i retired because i was injured and it wasn't my choice and i felt um that i hadn't had the career that I should have had, even though I came to it quite late. I didn't go pro to I was 27. But in that time, I just maximised what I could. And so to leave that Olympics in 08 and not make 2012 because I was injured was so devastating. And it still does have an effect on me. And, uh, and that
0: in itself... London 2012, yeah. you know we're broadcasting this, we're recording this podcast from London. I mean, that must have been a beacon on your horizon for ages.
2: Yeah, I mean, it still is a little bit, because when you hear of being a London Olympian, even though I was a two-time Olympian before, being a London Olympian would have meant a lot more and would have really capped off my career, and especially if I'd have had those two medals back in Beijing, I'd have had a, probably a different run-in and a different outlook and a different outlook when I ret- retired. Uh, but it is it is life and you, ha- you have to deal with it the best way you know how and you just hope you've got the tools to do that.
0: But do you think you ever will or do you have to accept the fact that it will always be sort of sitting around you and you've just got to process it and find new ways to sort of move forward with your life?
2: I'm probably going to be one of those old grumpy old women. I'm already all grumpy <laughs> in 30 years. Oh, I should have been this and I could have done that. But hopefully... No, I'm, quite, I'm very resilient because of how I've been brought up. So I'd, I'd like to think I've got a great toolbox and I can dig in there and be strong, but I don't want to have to keep having to be strong and dig in there. I should be able to just say, oh, that was a great career. Now I can just park it and move on. But it is just really hard. It, it will be like a little chip on my shoulder, I think. If it would have been any other where at place in 2012, anywhere other than the UK, I think it would have been okay.
0: They say the biggest cause of anxiety is unfulfilled expectations, whether they're the ones we place on ourselves or the ones that others place on us. So do you think that applies to a lot of people who didn't choose the outpoint of their sporting careers?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been demonstrated, Mark. Um, the research that we've um, completed previously has shown that that, that element of societal impact, the, the preconception of what you must do next a lack of fulfillment potentially as well from the people that participate in sport. It all contributes towards that big black hole that everybody looks at. Um, And that's one of the reasons why we need to talk about it. We need to give people the opportunity to discuss how scary it is, but it's okay. And that things can be changed, but you need to action something. It doesn't just happen. Um, I think everybody would agree that historically Athletes have not always been the best at being active post-career and have had expectations from the sports industry. Um, There's so many of us now that's no longer the way and there's only so many jobs out there. So the best way of preparing yourself for what's next is to be active. Mm. Do as much as you can.
0: Except that, Kelly, you're you're looking at the, the, the sporting goal and I guess you don't think about anything else when you're in that zone and just thinking, let me get to the next Olympics and then all of a sudden... You know, you get the, the the leg injury, you get the back injury, and suddenly you find yourself in a completely different world.
2: Yeah, I mean, because you're you're only you're tunnel visioned, as they say, and you're only focused on that one goal for those four years, and anything can happen in those four years. And even if it doesn't look like you might not make it to the end of those four years, which is the Olympics. You still have a, a, you still see that chink of light, thinking I can get there, because you're hoping for a miracle. And it, like Scott's saying, actually it doesn't matter how successful I could have been, ten-time Olympic champion, and still ended the way I did, and still feel unfulfilled. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how successful you are or not. I just think the expectation you place on yourself, because all your life people have put that on you, it's what you're, that's all you know. So when you fail big time and then you're out of the out, out of that context of being an athlete, it's it's really you don't know what to do with yourself, how to think, because you just do feel like a failure. I think that regardless of whether you're, you choose to or whether you don't choose to come out of it.
0: But you, you, you do know you two, don't you, that we all fail at stuff. I mean, I'm sitting in a room here now with another seven people sort of behind the three of us in here, and they've all had their moments, probably made mistakes today. I'll have done absolutely stacks of them. It's just that you worked in a very public arena where people could assess and measure success. I think oh, it's, sorry, Scott, oh, I think please. it's
2: harder now than it was probably even six, seven years ago because social media yeah. and everyone can judge you um, whether you want it or not. And so we just had the papers and the TV and the radio in your old days. And now you're judged by every single person that you interact with on the, on the Internet. So we didn't have that.
0: And see. judge yourself, as well, yeah. by yes. following yeah. people on social media who yeah. you see they've been at this tournament, or mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're celebrating scoring a goal or a try, and you go, oh, I didn't do that. And it, it can give you a bad half day, can't it? Or worse. But don't
1: forget, when you're an athlete, every single movement you make is being criticised or endorsed by somebody that's within that organisation. There's only so long that can go on for, but has it, has, before it has a long-term impact on the way you think about life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that, that people aren't exposed to you know, this can happen from as early as five years of age nowadays, Mark. You know, you can imagine what impact that's going to have on you mentally by the, by the time you reach 15, 16, where the highest attrition in sport occurs. Um, you know, I've heard people say that we don't need to do anything for 15, 16-year-olds. God forbid if we don't, because it's it's enormous.
0: But don't we have to control the controllables, and don't we have to get out the best of what we can? And, you you know, the, uh, the Russian doping scandal has affected your career, but it's not as though, all right, you were talking about one of the individuals at the time, but it's not as though you could really have controlled that. It's not as though you could have, you know, gone to all the governing bodies and really got to the bottom of it and changed those circumstances back then, is it?
2: No, and at the time, I thought I wasn't good enough. So then for those four, no, for those 10 years or nine years, I wasn't good enough. And then you realise you were good enough. So then you've got to put behind you all those 10 years of like, I was actually, I was good enough. So now I do feel I was good enough at the time and still disappointed I didn't win the gold medal. I'll still be a bit disappointed in myself, but at least I've got medals to prove that I was pretty good at the time. It just, um, yeah. So the, the thing that you feel for me probably is I'm still disappointed I didn't win a gold medal.
3: Mm.
0: I think you should be very proud, Kelly Southern. Oh, I am now. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Let's go and hear now from one of the UK's greatest ever sportswomen, a wheelchair racing 16 times Paralympic medalist and six times winner of the London Marathon. I recently dropped by the Palace of Westminster to meet up with now Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson.
3: currently sitting in the house lords which is very plush a lot of wood um very nice carpet somebody said to me when I first came here oh don't worry my dear this is just like boarding school (laughs) yeah I I went to a state school so uh this is not like my school but um I I think I'm I'm really lucky in lots of ways in that my parents were very pragmatic about my sporting career and were very grounding so whatever I did mum and dad were quite um uh, leveling in terms of, yeah, that's lovely, but what you're going to do is a real job. And, you know, at the time that I was competing as well, there was, you know, absolutely no money in wheelchair racing. I, I won more gift vouchers than real money. Um, and luckily, because I had enough sponsors to to keep me going and do all the races I wanted to do while I was competing, but, but not sort of um, a big bank account at the end of it that um, meant that I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. So all the way through my career... I was thinking about what next because, you know, conscious that I could get injured or I could get deselected or, and, um, and also, um, Dave Moorcroft said to me when I was in my sort of mid 20s, You're a long time retired. And that that was really kind of quite important to me as, as well as everything else. So I, when, when I retired, I knew what I didn't want to do. Um, and, and actually, that's more than a lot of people do. So I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. But, but that always felt like it was a, a, a big start for me. But that, that transition process is, is for everybody. It's really tough. And what we know now is how much money you earn or how famous you are or anything. That, that doesn't really matter. That transition out is really tough. So
0: can you share your emotions with us? Because I know there's whole stages of, of process that you would go through. But what kind of things were you, were you thinking? I mean, apart from anything else, you're coming out of what you've dedicated your life to for so long.
3: Well, I remember doing um the Athens Paralympics and thinking, That's it, I'm I'm done. I I can't keep doing this and I absolutely knew at that point I there was no way I could do Beijing. I was physically and mentally broken. But then I didn't quite know in some ways how to stop or at what point. So what I wanted to do was be absolutely certain that what because once you stop that's it, you can't go back. You know, not my, my race weight was 45 kilos you know just in terms of that and the training you you can't take a break at, at in your 30s and and go back in the, the same way so I did the 2005 season um and it was kind of, actually it was all right and then I did the 2006 season and you know absolutely actually from the beginning of 2006 new uh, if I made it through to the end it, it would be a bit of a miracle because I was just getting injured and sick and and it wasn't fun anymore uh and so in in some ways that final season was really difficult because I won some races but you know I lost some you know it it was just hard to keep and hard to get in any consistent training was you know just you know I'd I'd train for two weeks and need a couple of days off and 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 then you have all this thing where you suddenly realize you can't recover the same you know and I you, you you know that but it was like I can't recover the same way I could in my 20s and it was just getting harder to go out through the front door. And, and, and all those things were, were pretty tough. Um, when I... My final race, there was this really weird emotion. I spent most of the day crying with, you know, my husband saying to me, you can change your mind. And it's like, I am so done with this. I never want to do this again. I never want to warm up, sit in a, um, uh, you know, control I, I I never want to do any of this stuff again. But also there's that emotion knowing that you're, you're not going to be out on the track again. So that was weird. But but actually, it was a huge amount of, once I stopped, there was a huge amount of peace. Because actually, I don't have to be this athlete anymore. I, I don't have to be, you know, oh, you're tiny, Gray-Thompson, you're that athlete, aren't you? And one of the hardest bits was that uh, I, I did think when I stopped, people would stop saying that to me. And... 12 and a bit years into retirement, I still get. oh, you're the athlete, aren't you? So, but, but it took me a couple of months to go, actually, do you know what? That's. It's really nice that people say that and it's not, it's not a bad thing. So I think a lot of it's getting it clear in your own head that um, it's, it's okay to always, for the rest of your life, if people recognise you, it's, it's okay to be called that. But, but it's, it's quite complicated explaining to people about all those different emotions. But for me, when I stopped... Um, I'm actually, I, I I carried on training for a few months afterwards, um, because actually, um, even though I knew I didn't want to race, it, it's that thing that fills your day. You know, you're so organised and ordered, and everything that fits around that is, is what you do. So there was also that process of detraining and, you know, gradually stepping stepping away from it. So it is it's complicated to try and explain because I think there's an assumption that you that it's easy to walk away. Um, some bits of it were some bits of it weren't
1: she's a rarity Scott isn't she oh for sure I mean it's interesting there somebody who had such a fantastic career Mark um, speaking about the anxiety of retirement Uh, we we spoke about it before we heard from Tani then previously Um, that's something that that scares everybody and I think we we talk about the loss of identity Uh, people speak about it quite openly um, I personally didn't want to tell anybody that I used to play football because I felt as if there'd be a huge prejudgment there before you even got to know me. Um, but it's actually something to be incredibly proud of. Uh, it, it gets, again, it's linked to uh, the, the loss of the loss of identity. It's linked to to perception of failure um, and what you, you'll see me as. Um, do you see me as somebody that's now valuable to you, or do you see me as only valuable when I used to be that athlete? And that's something that is is something that that needs to be challenged and faced up pretty quickly to ensure that we're looking after the athletes of today.
0: Mm. There is a sort of core needs theory, and the six I've got in front of me are we all have needs as human beings to, for significance, to contribute, for certainty, for variety, for growth, and for connection. Can you re- kind of relate to most of those? You're having a sneaky peek at that Hi. list there, aren't you? <laughs> so is that is that a sort of self-wrestle, where you, you're reluctant to admit to yourself that the old body's gone and you're not gonna
1: be able to make the return. Oh, for sure, I mean, but if you look at Kelly as an example, somebody who's worked before they, they were an elite full-time athlete, the struggles that she still had to challenge on a daily mm. basis just really highlights how important preparing athletes for the next day is. I think, you know, we would we would, we would would experience people that are now full-time athletes, have been since they left school, probably now starting at an earlier age of 12, um, You know, they're being told on a daily basis they are part of this elite group, but therefore you get expectations that are now given to you with some money to say, okay, you're now gonna be the best of the best. Um, For it to be a struggle for those that have been part-time and then full-time, let alone for those that have only ever experienced full-time, I I wouldn't like to think about it. And and being injured um, on top of that, you know, you're not only mentally prepared for being elite and wanting to be successful, but then to have that taken away from you. I mean, for myself, You know, I played football since the age of four. Uh, Me and my brothers would go around the park and beat everybody and then come home again and then do it the next day. Um, You know, that was what I was going to be. I think that the reality is, though, that I was a very unhappy footballer because when you go from being a scholar like I was, going to be the best goalkeeper in the country and all that jazz, to that switch flicking and it being a full-time profession where it matters. um, Mentally, I I couldn't prepare myself for that because it goes from being a joyous laugh to a very serious transaction. And that's what it is, that you become part of a business where unless you perform at the elite level, somebody will come in and take your position.
0: I suppose that's no different to kind of what I've done because I started broadcasting as a football fan and now, the team I used to support, sometimes I'll finish my day's work having been talking about them all afternoon and I'm not sure what the result is at the end of the day because you become so engrossed in the industry. So it does take a little summing away when a passion becomes a career, is what you're saying.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's any walk of life, it's always easier for people to look at it from the outside in and say, oh, you must be really happy to have that job. That looks fantastic. I'd love to have your job. But it's like anything in life. When you have to do it and, and you gain responsibility and it matters it changes, it changes your perception on it. Um, you know, you don't go home and then think about your job for another 10 hours, like you would if you're a fan of something, because you, that's your hobby. You go home and you try to deflate yourself after a really intense day, ready for the next one. Um, but that's, don't get me wrong, that's the emotion of sport. That's what sport brings out in people. And that's something we can't take away. But at the same time, what we can do is replenish what somebody is giving to sport in a way that allows them to make better decisions when that time comes, be it through injury or a, hopefully a very ripe old age where enough is enough.
0: Do you think the fact that you were able to give up a full-time job, got your funding, and went off to be an athlete, you almost kind of lose your head a bit. There's a euphoria of thinking, I did it, I'm, I'm a professional athlete and it it stops you planning for the future and it stops putting that structure back in place i don't think i had time, time for that case. i had
2: nine i had nine months so i left my quit my job in 2030 at uh, 2003 october and i won olympic medal august 20 uh, nine months later i didn't really have that time to think about it because i was just on on that process of just going to the Olympics and I've qualified I'm just going to do the best I can so I didn't really have that time to to be euphoric I did get above myself and became a bit of a diva that for about a year and I got told about myself a lot but then okay then I then I settled down so um and became probably a pain in the ass to most people so um yeah uh, no I didn't have that euphoric high I'm probably more euphoric now when I get a get a good opportunity to work in in sport to help others
0: Hmm. And you are doing that. You've got a day a week with. Whilst we've talked about, you're still doing bits mm-hmm. with other athletes, but on a voluntary basis. Yeah. I, why, why has it taken you seven years to sort of still not be quite sure where you want to go?
2: Oh, and on top of that, I'm just in my finishing my masters as well. So ah, um, in, in uh, I'm doing sports directorship. Okay. So because I want to be a director of sport or sporting director. Okay. Um, so mainly in leadership. So I, I <laughs> 40 years old, going back to college isn't fun. Um, so it. I've been coaching for a long time, but I didn't really want to do it. I was forced into it really because somebody, one of my coaches, had died and wanted me to take over their group, so I did. Um, but I just, I'm passionate about giving back, and our sport isn't very good at holding on to knowledgeable and I'm not saying I'm sk- skillful, but s- necessarily um, skillful people and retaining them. And I just want to give back because that's the sort of person I am, and I'm fully um, motivated to ensure my sport is is. is left in the best possible way it can be and we've got loads of issues in our sport we have no CEO, we have no chair currently in our national governing body so it's like okay what can I do to make this better and I set up the British Athletics Athletes Commission because athletes had no voice so I found out I sit on various international boards and other sporting boards so um, to make a difference in other sports because I'm just passionate about making a difference for everybody whether it's duty of care or, or the coaching pathway um, mm. I'm quite broad with my passion for the sport
0: do you think just anybody gets invited to do those things? Do you think there might be a, a you know, there the might be notoriety from your past? Do you think there might be a skill base that asks that that leads to people asking you to do all those things? Do you think you might be better than you think you actually prob-
2: are? Yeah, I think that's the athlete thing. You always striving to be better, but I just wish I got paid for all these roles because I'm probably the yeah. I'll but probably you're working towards
0: it. that. When you get your masters and then you really start
2: going
1: (laughs) i think to be fair on that point it's actually a really topical issue because um in sport we as athletes are quite prepared to train day in day out to get better when we migrate from sport into a different walk of life that long-term viewpoint really kicks in and it scares a lot of us when i first started to study at warwick the thought of doing a three-year study was horrific Um, Now, three years is three years. I've just started my PhD, that's gonna be three to five years. No problem, because I understand that's part of what I need to achieve. Well, this
0: is not just athletes, this is anybody in any walk of life who wants to re-engineer their life, or wants to start looking in other areas. Society as a whole, with what's coming in the next decade, is gonna have to start doing this when great swathes of jobs disappear
1: on the horizon. Absolutely spot on, but the reality is that when you're an athlete, you work off short-term cycles. So you're either competition or training, you have short-term goals. Which means you work in a very circular motion beyond that that 's not how life is. You work on time scale, sure, but you know, you always know what your start point is and what your objective is in sport it's not just it 's not the same um, and that 's where we have to change the mentality of those that participate so that they can make decisions based upon the longer term view.
4: Mm.
0: Have a, have a word with Kelly Southerton while I read this next link and tell her she's better than she thinks she is, <laughs> will you? Because listening to us so far is 23-year-old Catherine Lane, who recently started blogging about her own embryonic steps out of her chosen sport after being cut in late 2018 from the GB hockey training squat. So how are you feeling Catherine having heard all that's just been said? There's a lot to digest here isn't there? Is it confusing you or helping you?
4: I think it's helping me in terms of I've got these two amazing people in the room who have gone through exactly what I'm going through now and it's actually quite comforting hearing that Kelly seven years on still (laughs) hasn't kind of got a proper like, definitive plan of what she wants to do in place. I'm only three months on um, and I'm kind of making steps towards knowing what I want to do um, but still dealing with the process at the same time so it's quite comforting to know that you've got people that have gone through the same thing that you're going through now.
0: Mm. I mean I've read your blog and it was clearly a short sharp shock, you kind of knew they were cutting the training squad down from a numbers point of view but I guess you still don't want to believe that you're going to be one of the ones that is part of the cull.
4: Yeah I think my time in the programme was a bit of a whirlwind, Um, finished uni, did a very short stint in recruitment for four weeks, um, got trials for the GB squad, went into that, loved it. First year, wasn't selected for anything, wasn't playing well. Um, As Scott's saying, it's a big jump when your hobby turns into your job, Um, and I think it took me a while to adapt to that and kind of get used to it. Um, Second year in the squad, in January, I was told that we had a Commonwealth Games and a World Cup that year, and was told that probably wasn't gonna go to either, like just keep training, keep working hard. Then two weeks later was selected for the Commonwealth Games um, and had the best time of my life, absolutely loved it um, in the Gold Coast. And then went on to go and play at the World Cup in London as well, which is one of the best experiences I've ever had, a home World Cup was just insane. And then two months later, cut. Um, So like massive whirlwind. Um, I think I was still getting used to the highs and then suddenly the lows hit. so, yeah, just, I think I'm still processing everything over the last year, not just the deselection. Are the,
0: <laughs> are the lows much deeper than the highs are highs, if that makes sense?
4: <laughs> I don't think so. I think the highs are incredibly high and the lows can be incredibly low, but that is just the nature of professional sport. That's the job that we go into. Um, other jobs have highs and lows, and that's just part of our careers, I guess.
0: Mm. I mean, that, that first sort of few days when you've, had that news delivered i'm i'm guessing you're absolutely flawed the the very thing that you've wrapped around yourself is taken from you
4: yeah absolutely um i booked a holiday (laughs) so i'm going to new york in a couple of weeks um i think you just don't know what to do um i still trained because i like going to the gym i love playing hockey um but the biggest difference is not having 30 other people to do it with you're suddenly on your own in a public gym You've not got people to chat with, laugh with, um, and you're suddenly doing it all on your own, which I think was the biggest difference for me.
0: Mm. But you did have your degree, obviously, so you must have, and, and obviously you'd, you'd come into it reasonably recently, so you must have had a, what, do you have a master plan related <laughs> to your degree or did you think you were likely to be caught up in hockey for the next few years?
4: I was hoping that I'd be in hockey for longer. Um, I had my undergrad degree. I started studying a part-time master's as well, um, which I'm about well should be finishing in about six months. Um, and kind of when I was in the program, I thought I'd got my undergrad degree. I was studying still. I'd, I was I was going to be fine. Like <laughs> I've got another four to six years in the sport. I'll be all right. Um, and you suddenly get out of the sport. No one really cares that you've got a degree in a master's. Like yes, they're good, but. A lot of jobs that you want to apply for you need a lot more than just a degree and um, I th- don't think you realize how competitive it is until you try and get into it.
0: Have you got like stuff in mind now as to where you want to weave to?
4: Um, yes so I'd like to go into business in some department and um, as I've written in my blogs and um, kind of interviewing and working out stages and um, I think so yeah still processing Finishing my masters is my main goal at the moment. Mm.
0: What's been swirling around your head? Share it with us. If there are if there are people that have literally just had their own sporting career, maybe ended in a way that they weren't expecting, you know, what are they going to go through over the next few weeks?
4: Oh, there's all sorts. People talk about it as kind of being like a standard grief process. So you like denial, depression, and then you finally get to the acceptance stage. Um, I think for me, the biggest thing has been you just have so much time on your hands. Like going to the gym has literally been the highlight of my day. I booked an eye appointment the other day because <laughs> I literally had nothing to do. I was like, I'm going to get my eyes tested. Um, you just have so much free time because you literally go from training however many hours a day to meetings to psychology to video analysis. Then you have to prep your food for the next day. You just you go from being so busy to then just nothing. And I think you have to be able to fill your days with something to kind of get by.
0: Do, do, do you find as well that most sports people have to consider their physicality as well? That you you are used to exceeding a certain amount of energy every day. You've got to watch your calorific... In- I'm not looking at you <laughs> specifically here, Scott. Exactly. I don't want you to think I think it, you know this is targeted. No, but you know no, what I mean? Don't. It's a serious question. And also that then brings the, the psychological benefits we know of the endorphin production, etc, etc. Yeah, et that's right. I
1: think um, so. so when you play competitive sport, people talk about addiction during and after. So... When, when you play competitively or, or sport um, as a hobby, you get instant hits of dopamine. And, and when you do that, it, it presides itself in the same way as it does when you drink, when you have alcohol and, and other actions. Um, when, when you go from doing that day in day out, you're getting your two, three hour hit a day to nothing. It has a huge mental effect on you. Aside from that, then if you can't train like I couldn't, so I had to retire f- because of physicalities I couldn't train like i wanted to train in my head i'm still an athlete in my body there's absolutely no chance and so you have to think about how you can combat that um we talk about eating disorders for people um i can almost guarantee there are a huge number of eating disorders for athletes because you go from eating four or five times a day you think then that you have to eat that many times a day because that's how you eat that's not how general public would normally eat um so it's, it's, it's 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 de-risking the way that you live your life Um, and again that comes to to readiness if you're mentally prepared for anything in life then it's always going to be a lot softer than if you're not Um, and as I said that goes to training, eating being around 30 people a day like Catherine said or not Um, it's just about what's doing what's right you know and and making sure that people are in a good place Hmm. Did either of you two suffer from depression in the aftermath of your careers coming to an end? If you look at so Bart, you touched on the question about depression. You know, statistically now it's, it's increasing with athletes that nearly two out of three will suffer when leaving sport, which is a, a terrifying statistic. Um, I think general public, we're looking at maybe one in five. You know, that, that's a c- real compound effect and it's come from somewhere. Um, just going back to what Catherine said as well, there's a, there's a preconception that if you have academic qualifications, you're gonna be okay. Mm. That's not right. Um, if you're financially well off, you're gonna be okay. Again, that's not right. And, and even if you've got them both, there's still something missing. I mean, if you look at, from the research we've done and, and the meetings we've had, you look at the NFL, you know, the sport of all sports, the money that's flying around there is astronomical. Um, but they've got the most crippling statistics globally of any sport. Um, you know, they, all of the athletes go through college. So you would have thought that's a huge box tick there. Then they've got massive revenues running through the sport. Again, you would have thought everyone's going to be OK, but they're not. You know, you, you, as I said, the stats of bankruptcy is two out of three within 12 months of leaving the sport. Divorce, two out of three within a year of leaving sport. Now, I can speak quite openly here. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not the other half's fault on all occasions. So why, if we ask why this is happening, that's because they're having to, to, to facilitate an absolute nightmare of a scenario because these poor people haven't been readied for the, mm-hmm. for the next phase. Um, and I think that this, this soft skill, this cognitive enhancement of people, that most people do get during their, their schooling, their university years, their college years, when they're working at Sainsbury's or or for EY, for example, they're, they're getting exposed to societal challenges day in day out. Um, when you're an athlete, you're just not, and and that's something that 35 or 21 or 18, when you're when you when you leave sport, you're still not exposed to that, and you need that. Well, come on then.
0: Where does the responsibility lie? Because there's plenty of other people working across the world who are building bridges or working as accountants or whatever, who probably don't get anybody looking after them from a holistic point of view, who probably take their money for putting slates on a roof and then leave and then lose the job the following week and just have to get on with it. So why should sports people be any different?
1: I think, I think there's a few caveats to that question. So thanks very much for that. Um, yeah, I, I think, can feel know, Kelly's eyes burning yeah, inside the side uh, of my head as well. So I'm looking forward to the answer too, um, yeah. You know, if, you, if you're working away from sport, we, we touched on it earlier. You're not being told you're the best of the best, that you need to do this, you need to compromise with that. Um, for one physical output, one element of, of redress, that's not what you're there to do. You do your day job day in, day out. It's very unlikely. What, as well, an average
0: roofer can't aspire to be a brilliant roofer, can't aspire to be the best roofer. Look, when in the I world. became a
1: dustman, I was the best dustman in Harrow. I'm not saying that. That's that's not that what life is. But the reality is that me being a dustman is very unlikely to make me then need spinal implants or hip reshapes or have to have cardiac surgery. So we have to think about the consequences of our actions and what we're asking from people. Okay. This is, this is where we are now. We know that the implications of being an athlete are far higher than previously stated.
2: You know, how, how we enter sport and what our mindset should be. It should, yes, it should be about being the best it possibly can be, but uh, Tany Gray said about... You know, when somebody said to her about you're a long time retired, so that should be on the forefront of your mind going through from before you enter the sport, and that is the, the schools, the governing bodies, international federations of sport. That should be that should be the first thing that they should in help athletes go through their elite programs. That should be education, vocation, what your skill set, what your soft skills. let enhance those abilities because then you'll be a better person. Uh, actually you'd probably be a better athlete if you learn all these skills because it will enhance your intake and it also gives you mind a aw- uh, time away from your sport at the same time as you're doing a sport, which I think is really crucial.
0: Mm. This is what EY's personal performance programme is all about.
1: Ah, that's right. I think, um, you know, there are those out there that look at the, the academic slant of a person and that's absolutely spot on. You know, we need to give athletes the opportunity to get these qualifications when they're living a really tight um, time scale in terms of training and eating and, and all those other commitments. Um, but but as we've all said now, there are are the the missing agendas around the personal soft skills of the the people, making sure that they can make conscious decisions on their own interpretation. Um, There's a line that we use called dependent decision makers, and when you're in sport, you are absolutely a dependent decision maker because whatever your action is, there's always a consequence in terms of somebody's comment. Whether it's good or bad, you you are waiting on somebody's interpretation before you do something next. Unfortunately, you then carry that on beyond the life of sport, which means that you you are waiting for that that uh, doorbell to ring. You're waiting for that job offer to come through the post, or well, now on email. Showing my age, um, but I think the reality is that if we're if we're able to give people the opportunity to think for themselves, understand what's valuable for them, if they do want to be a dustman, then fantastic. But let's give them the opportunity to understand that for themselves. If they want to work at EY, great. But not everybody wants to to, to do all these jobs that everybody has a, a perception of. You know when. I spoke recently on the radio regarding Andy Murray. Um, Instantaneously people said, oh, he's gonna be a coach. He's got a foundation, he's fine. Um, The way that you view things when you're an active athlete is very different to one when you're no longer that person. And so um, giving somebody space, knowing that it's not one or the other, um, but also as Kelly's quite rightly said, so there's now research that demonstrates increasing somebody's cognitive enhancement while they're an active athlete actually increases performance. It allows them to think quicker, filtrate, fear under pressure. Um, all of these things are huge attributes to anybody. So if we can do this alongside being that potential elite athlete, then everybody will benefit.
0: We're going to follow Catherine's progress across the Blood, Sweat and Fears podcast over the, the coming months. If you've got one bit of advice you would give her, though, having come out of this seven years ago, what what, what would what would you say to her?
2: I always... Like you said that um, I'm seven years on, and I don't really know what I do. I'm doing. I absolutely do. Um, I just don't know what the end goal is. <laughs> I'm on a plan, and I'm happy where I am, and I just say yes to everything. And I think my, my advice to you is to say yes to as many things as possible to broaden your knowledge and horizons, because if I didn't say yes to half the things, I, I, would not have, I wouldn't be half the places of experience. The, the networks that I have, so just say yes, even when you feel uncomfortable, because it goes with the, you've got to feel, be in an uncomfortable situation, learn how to be uncomfortable, to get comfortable, so just say yes, even if you think no, I can't <laughs> do it, just say yes, because you don't know where you it leads to, and who you'll meet. Yeah. This so why I say yes to this. I don't know who I'm going to meet and where it's going to lead to. No,
0: well, it was a great philosophy yeah. in life. I saw
2: your name down and I thought, I'll oh, just say yes, you're I get saying, to meet Mark. You're
0: saying all the right things. Really. <laughs> I'll tell you a story though. I'll tell you a story. I get in a cab up in Manchester and the cabbie's got uh, got a sort of southern accent. So said, what are you doing up here? I followed my missus up here. He met her on the rank at Euston, she got in as a passenger. He gave her a a sort of 20 mile ride down to Surrey from Euston station. If he'd stopped at one more set of lights, driven slightly slower, He wouldn't have been with them. They've been together now 42 years and their moment came at a crossing on the Euston cab rank. Can Fantastic. You imagine? Isn't it? Yep. We never know what is round the corner. Like learning to play the ukulele. <laughs> That's the one. You're learning to play the ukulele. <laughs> I
4: am, yeah. You're going to bring it in next
0: time we when we do the next episode yeah. of this podcast. Title you're gonna, credits. <laughs> are you going to agree to that now? <laughs>
4: Oh, God, I've so <laughs> yes, oh, got to yeah, get okay. practising. So, with so yeah, you going to agree with it, With the new life motto, yes. You've got to do that. You don't know where it's
2: going to take you because it could be so good. You could be on Britain's Got Talent next year. You just don't know.
0: <laughs> I feel we're coming up the other side. On the subject of which, back to our chat with Baroness Tani Grey-Thompson, was she always destined for a life after sport in public service?
3: I, I was always interested in politics, not very interested in party politics. And as my my time competing, I was you know, interested in disability rights, didn't have a public view on it because I think it's it's quite hard when you're competing to have a public view on politics. I, I kind of think it's probably best not to, because you actually need to concentrate on being a really good athlete. Um and and it's um it's a huge privilege to be an athlete, but it takes up your whole life, you know, what you eat, where you go, how much sleep you get. You know, it's not just the time you spend training, it's the time you spend building your racing chair and deciding how thick your lycra is going to be you know, it's all these things that take up this huge amount of time you know, and um, it's so the, the athlete welfare, athlete rights kind of became really important to me as well because, you know, kind of quite conscious if you're winning gold medals you have more ability to say things than if you're not winning gold medals because it's quite hard for the team to drop you if you're winning the medals that they need so, you know, I, I got involved in lots of discussions um, over the years there's lots I learned from that about actually how you pick up athletes, how you drop them. You know, there's, I I think there's a right and wrong way of doing it. And I saw, you know, athletes just be dropped in really poor ways. And I would dive in and have a fight, saying, you know, this is not acceptable, you know, and kind of conscious it was going to happen to, you know, potentially happen to me at one point. But but I really hated seeing athletes who trained. I've never yet met an athlete who's turned up at a games trying to do badly. You know, I've seen athletes not train right and make, you know, maybe some poor decisions on their training or the periodisation or the competitions they do. Or you know, but but I've never seen one deliberately trying to be poor. And you know, ends of games when people are just discarded. I I just don't think that's the right way to treat people because actually, again, that transition, what you go on to do next, how you leave one role, really determines what happens to you for the the your your the rest of your life. So you know, I I. I Probably got involved in too many fights that which actually probably in the last two years of my career, and and beyond that came back to bite me, because you know I I kind of felt that I should be um trying to offer a bit of protection to, to other athletes, and and being an athlete is quite egotistical. You need an amount of ego to turn up on the start line and put yourself in those situations. It's very easy to just think about nothing but you, and um, but also you know I say to young athletes if you're going to a dinner and you're sitting next to someone who runs a company who you'd like to be sponsored by, you kind of need to have a conversation with them, which is more than just about you as an individual. You know, and yesterday I did two hundred. Great, that's really interesting. You know, you can't sustain even a dinner conversation um, about what training you've done and what you want to do in the next couple of years. So, you know, uh, Michael Jordan said years and years ago, one of the best things he ever did was every day he read the Wall Street Journal. Because then when you're going into sponsorship meeting or whatever it is, you know, you, you've, you've got, you're a more complete person, you're more rounded. And then also, I think that helps you think about life after, you know, um, about what you don't like. So I've seen athletes. Um, so what I, I was able to do, I, I was able to, when I was competing, have uh, enough money in the bank account that I didn't need to make a decision for nine months. So by nine, nine months, I did have to make a decision, but I had time. I didn't have to rush into things. Um, but there's a sense of urgency, you know, so I didn't sort of have to think, oh, well, I've got 10 years. Um, and that kind of focuses your mind. And uh, so I, I was able to turn down a couple of things that might have at that moment in time paid me a decent amount of money, mm-hmm. but but I didn't feel that I had to do it because I had no other option. And, you know, talking about pensions and national insurance and stuff like that is really boring. And my dad used to talk to me about it all the time. And I remember sitting there as a young athlete going, oh my God. Uh, and now I find You regret that now? No, well, well I, I did listen to him more than I probably made out. But now I talk to young athletes about this. You know, if you don't pay your national insurance when you're competing, you know, it's not good. So, um, you know, it's things like that. That I think that's an important part of an athlete's education. You know, you're, you might not know about what tax you have to pay, you know, but somebody in an athlete's life should be giving them that you know it shouldn't be head coach of your sport but as part of the program that's put around young athletes those are the sort of things I think you know we need to be talking about and having a really grown-up discussion you know I don't think you should say to an athlete uh, a young person at 12 right you want to be in this sport so the reality is you're going to train your socks off um you're probably going to get injured later on in life your body's not going to be in a good way uh you will and your family will spend a huge amount of money trying to make this happen and you're probably going to make not going to make it um and you'll be sort of discarded before you've got anywhere near the team but good luck you know that, that you shouldn't be doing that but i think at points through an athlete's career having those conversations about what next i don't think it's a detriment to an athlete's career because also you know it's you it comes back to you're a long time retired so you've got to be having those sensible discussions um and I think sometimes what I see in a lot of sports is actually, am quite rightly, coaches aren't qualified to have that conversation and nor should they be, but there's no one else in the sport doing that. And I, I do think, you know, what else you do with your life when you're competing? You know, what else do you want to do? Those, those are really important conversations to have.
0: Fantastic. Do you know, do you know what, Scott, Wood, it feels to me as though this is a sort of self-defeating circle because on the one hand, of course we want athletes sports people to be rounded and have more than just their sport but as kelly has said there's that pressure that they put on themselves and perceive that others put on them that they have to be on it 24 7
1: yeah there is uh, it, as you said it's um self-perpetuating really isn't it, 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 it there's you said it different... much more sweetly than thank I thank you did. mark that's uh, three years at, at university good that's what it'll do for you um <laughs> i think uh i think it's tough isn't it because you need you want you want people to be people and get the experiences that we, we've all had based upon their own merit. Um, but again, this comes back to ensuring that they have the opportunity of decisions um, without us having to tell them what's good and bad. I think historically, especially if you look at football, for example, Mark, you know, when we were younger, the, those that we used to watch have fallen on really hard times and there wasn't necessarily opportunity there for, for anything to be different because they didn't have the infrastructure, they didn't have... For example, what the PFA are doing nowadays, it just wasn't there. Um, things are different now. And so, as you, as you alluded to with Tani, one of, the, one of the reasons why EY have now entered this market is that it's vitally important that these sports organisations have the opportunity of an increased scale for delivery, while knowing that that element of independence is being retained. Knowing that whoever's going in and speaking to these athletes is there for one purpose and one purpose only. That means that whatever information we're passing on to these participants, um, it's hopefully fulfilling the need or the void, or, or at least enhancing what they're currently being given already.
0: you would got your little head down, you'd quit your job, you, you- pounding towards Athens in 2004 and somebody had come along and said, right, weren't you sitting on this computer for three hours to start to do a psychological profile and we need to start planning for the future and have you thought about putting some money away now you're on it a bit towards your pension or towards your national insurance contributions, when you're in that full diva mode, how willing would you have been to contemplate life after sport at that point?
2: I was a diva the following year. Oh, okay, So, fine. I think if... I
0: think, <laughs> I, I think there's probably still a little bit of that in there, Scott, don't oh, you? Yeah, of course, yeah.
3: of course.
2: Yeah. Um, I know that. Um, I think if, if, if that's what part of the process of being on lottery funding was, and that's the process, I didn't know any different, so then it would've been, oh, okay, this is the plan, but you're never told that, so if someone, you know from English Institute of sport performance lifestyle or u k sport would have said to all my sports so this is the process you're on funding now, but these are the criteria this is what we would like you to do, this is what we want you to do going forward as part of your your plan your pathway uh, as being an athlete and past being an athlete um this is what you're doing, and it you have to do it to maintain your funding then it's okay cool, I'd have done it. It would have been fine, but that wasn't the that wasn't um ever explained or done or dealt with you're just on funding that's it there you go thanks you've been
0: squeezed all the time yeah
2: well yeah and then you, you'll you get a letter about this is you don't have to pay tax on the money you get from your funding blah 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 and find yourself an accountant so you're just left to your own devices so you're not really given the um really what you should do or how you should do it you just like here's the money go and Do it. And I don't know if anybody remembers back in the day, about 15 years ago, lots of people were spending their lottery money on Playstations, and especially in athletics. You know, you're getting this money here, there and the other from EIS, was performance, lifestyle money, and people are just buying computers and stuff of it. So they weren't really utilising it where they should have.
1: It's also about how we articulate our information. There's no point in me trying to speak to an athlete the same way that I would a banker. Um, their level of information uh, retention is very different, and how we articulate that message as well would have to be leveled in a very different way because you only know what you know. Um, Therefore, whether it's a mixture of face-to-face or online learning, what we do need to be sure of is that whatever information we are passing on, um, it allows the athletes to retain it, and it allows them to retain it in a way that they understand, Um, without that, as Kelly said, you're getting letters through the post that you probably don't completely understand. You're more liable to make bad decisions. Um, and, and sport and we then can't have that element of redress. We can't say, well, look, we've been done this, we've done that, and therefore, you've had all that you need. There's never really been that, that facility in place. And that's another reason why incorporating analytics into this so we can actually see how people are performing and how the participation is and see if it's having the long-term impact we desire um, is just as important.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, before I get Kelly's thoughts on the programme that you're running, to round things off, let's have a final dip into our interview with Baroness Tani Grey-Thompson and just how important is it to have an independent provision such as the EY Personal Performance Programme?
3: I mean, the lottery support for young athletes is amazing, but it also uh, puts a buffer around you that doesn't necessarily mean you have to think about some of those things. And, you know... um, Sport, when you come in as a young athlete, shouldn't be about... I think there should be more transparency about just how it works, what you have to do to get to the next step. Um, and again, I don't think this is a detriment to athletes. It, it shouldn't be kind of luck if you make the next step. And, you know, even having... You know, you can have a really sensible conversation with a 12- and 13-year-old about some of the decisions they they have to take. And it's not about putting up a sort of sacrifice versus dedication, or but, but actually young people understanding... What what is required to be an elite athlete? You know, and one of the criticisms I had for my report was, oh, you want to make it all soft and cuddly? Well, no, that's not me as an athlete. You know, um, I had my daughter by cesarean section and was training two and a half weeks later. So, you know, uh, I, I don't expect that very athlete. But, but, but it's not about being because elite sport is tough and it's hard, and and that's the reality of it. We can't and we shouldn't change that. But it's about helping people make some of the decisions as they they come in. As they go through and 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 how they leave and you know athletes will have you know there's i kind of say you know being in a chair the assumption is being in a chair is the worst thing that ever happened to me being in a chair for me is not the worst 10 things in my life actually the worst 10 things in my life apart from my parents dying are probably from sport um so but but actually it's having that balance at the end of it for for recognizing those tough moments make you and also, there's loads of really good moments. And what I'd like to see from athletes, whatever age they leave these programmes, is they recognise the good and the bad and, and, and understanding how that helps them to take the next step.
0: Goodness me. You, you can tell why she's achieved all she has, can't you? I mean, she's absolutely driven there. And a lot of sense in what she says there, Scott.
1: Oh, look, for sure, I think... Um... You know, speaking there as a person that's been exposed to a lot of eventualities during her, her olympic career and beyond and therefore she can speak with some real honesty and richness that again only experience can get you i think you going back to kelly kelly's earlier point around um being involved in sport experience is something you can't buy it's that old saying and and therefore um exposing people that have been through different challenges that everybody doesn't get to experience or has been to specific commonwealth or olympic games is only going to be good to be reabsorbed back into the industry and whatever guys that is you know it's not always it's not always a coach as kelly said it might be somebody on an advisory panel or um you know in charge of a specific organization but i think it's, it's something that you know other sports do um and and through through allowing these athletes to, as I say, have have good careers in whichever format they present themselves in, as well as readying for what's next, is only going to increase that pool of talent that we can we can replenish back into sport long term.
0: Where does the responsibility lie, Kelly Southerton, for athletes and their after-sport life?
2: I think there's a responsibility the athletes have to take ownership of what they want to do and how they want to do it. It's just they need the resources and the tools to know how to do it, and then that, for me, is the sport that they, they've chosen to Try and be the best in as well. Um,
0: and most would be receptive to that if it was handed to them in you, in, in, in easy nuggets they could bite into. Yeah,
2: and especially if they're coming through young. Obviously, the parents and even at school um, as they're going, if they're going through GCSEs and A levels, and they're going through that transition of being an athlete when they're you know an elite athlete through the junior ranks and going into senior ranks. I think it needs to there needs to be a bit more collaboration from an earlier education, not like at 12, but when they get into their 15, 16. So they're growing growing into adulthood and they have to make these decisions and they're going to be in the wide world soon. Um, Because most sports people, they're good as their juniors. They're probably out at 18, 19 anyway, because they're going to uni and then they have realise they don't really want to do this anyway, a sport, to come to that decision. And that's where, as I said, governing bodies need to be better with schools, parents, etc. along the way.
0: What about coaches? As well.
2: So it depended on what sport it is. Obviously, pro sport with football and Olympic sports, where you're you're paid to be a national governing coach, there aren't many of them. Even my sport, those coaches are aren't paid. I think but on that as
1: well, though, a lot of these coaches are, are transitioned athletes. Um, yeah. So if we've not given them the skill sets to understand it as an athlete, we can't expect them to do the same as a coach. But to they then have manage targets was my was my
0: point. Oh, of course, that yeah. they that, that, that they will get whether it's whether it's not money, it might be kudos or in you know, in the at the very top end of elite sport, their positions will hang on a set of individuals going out and achieving the maximum that they can. The coach will see it for their benefit. That's the point I'm making. You start saying, I tell you what, I really do need to sit back and not go and kick another hundred over the bar, but I actually need to go and do a little bit of work on the thesis I'm doing. Not sure your average coach is going to be very receptive towards no, that. I no,
1: think, I think there's two things there, Mark. I think firstly, if an athlete's unhappy, their performance on the track or on the pitch is going to be affected. There's no two ways about that. Um, you know, if, if, for example, there's a premiership club and they sign a young kid from Spain for 18 million, 20 million euros, um, he then moves over, his family is still in Spain, for example. Um, it, it, it's inconceivable to imagine that he's going to be a happy person unless we put the right frameworks around him. Um, to then expect him to go out on a Saturday and play well is is an overstatement. Um, without ensuring that the person's happy, we can't expect the performance to be at the right level. The same goes for, for coaches as well, though. We, we talk about coaches having to make difficult decisions, um, but how we also ensure that they're OK too. Just because you're a coach, it doesn't mean you have all the answers. And I think that level of responsibility we give to that person as a coach um, can be just as troubling but you know the overarching um, element to all of this is about a changing the culture and the narrative that we use in sport Listen, thank you for listening. We have some fantastic guests lined up for the next podcast.
0: For more information about the program, please visit our website. That's ey.com forward slash UK forward slash personal performance program. I'll read that for you again. It's eY.com forward slash UK forward slash personal performance program. This podcast and future podcasts in the Blood Sweat and Fear series will be available on iTunes and via the EY website by visiting eY.com forward slash UK forward slash PAS forward slash podcast Kelly I've loved your company I'm tempted to ask you another question but I fear I fear the last two were curveballs and we've got to a lovely place with you are you happy are you oh, happier than you were when you stepped in this room about 45 minutes ago
2: am I smiling Mark you're smiling there you go. I
1: like that final <laughs> word from you Scott no I'd just like to say thanks very much Kelly I think uh, you know we have a great opportunity here to help as many people as we do globally and uh Hopefully by the next podcast, Mark, we'll have some uh, some more news.
0: Fantastic. And it also goes without saying, we thank Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson and Catherine Lane. I'm Mark Clement, brought to you by EY, building a better working world. Thanks for listening to Episode 1 of Blood, Sweat & Fears, the ultimate podcast with a focus on athlete experiences, readiness and preparation for life in and out of sport. Goodbye.